Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. You missed the English heatwave, Panda. 39 degrees. It's like the desert. Do you know what I discovered? What did you discover? I basically don't need to use highlighter or blush when it's blush. that hot. And it's a niche discovery. Though. It basically looked amazing, I've got to say. What, because you were just covered in sweat? I just look great when I'm perspiring. I mean, supermodel standards, I would say. Even when it's on the top lip. Yeah, it was everywhere. But I just kept catching myself in the mirror and I was like, who is that absolute jaw-dropping beauty? I think the just heat re- <laughs> might have warped. I was just glowing and actually I was looking around I was like everyone looks really good really? yeah they didn't smell great but they looked fabulous I can't even imagine the smell (laughs) I know the irony that I was in the south of Spain and it was was it cooler? yeah it was cooler than it was here it looked beautiful where you were staying where was it? in a lovely little finca in the middle of nowhere for four days Um, but the train tracks melted Zadie was stranded with her grandparents do you think it's a bit dramatic that the train tracks melted in England? Yeah, I mean, we're just a country that's completely not equipped for any sort of weather extremity. Well, someone tweeted, look, can everyone stop going on about it? You know, we're not equipped for excessive heat or cold or snow. <laughs> Don't get me started on fog. Sleet, out of the question. <laughs> but it was quite mad. North London was in meltdown because, quite literally, because all the trains were cancelled from King's Cross and Euston. You couldn't even get into Euston or King's Cross tube stations because there was just these hordes of people. I'm guessing that lots of people who did office jobs were allowed to work from home. But I have to say, I feel for people who work in hospitals. My poor sister, who's a midwife. Mm. Can you imagine giving birth in 39 degrees? Oof. 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 In the news this week, MP Jared O'Mara has revealed that he will resign in September 2019 after his former press chief, Gareth Arnold, sensationally posted his own resignation via Jared's Twitter page before changing the password so Jared couldn't get in. The tweets which have now been deleted describe the MP as having inexcusable contempt of his constituents and turning up to TV interviews having downed a litre of vodka. Jared O'Mara's announcement to resign also came after a junior staffer accused him of harassment. Sophie Wilkinson and Andrew Norfolk broke that story in The Times and it's quite interesting because a lot of outlooks are overlooking that detail of the story in the reporting of Jared O'Mara's resignation. Gareth Arnold's tweets were just part of that story, but still pretty riveting. I thought it raised some interesting issues about the professionalism of quitting via your boss's Twitter page, but he was desperate, Mm. so... Who knows? Speaking of MPs, Boris Johnson's new cabinet has been announced with top positions, including Sajid Javid as Chancellor, Dominic Raab, who Dolly still describes with the best aplomb of anyone I know as Foreign Minister, and Preeti Patel as Home Secretary. I'm really disappointed by the appointment of Nadine Dorries, who has repeatedly called for abortion rights to be limited. 
as junior health minister and as regular listeners of the high will know that's something that's super important to me with policymakers. it's something we face time and time again with front bench tories and i feel like it's becoming increasingly apparent in the cabinet as well jeremy hunt it was reported last month wants to reduce abortion to 12 weeks jacob reese mogg more on him later the new leader of the house of commons has historically been completely opposed to abortion even in the case of rape despite the fact that in 2017 he admitted that his investment firm, Somerset Capital Management, profited from pills used in illegal abortions in Indonesia via a company called Calbe Farm. As long as it's profitable, eh? End of fucking days. My favourite story from this week came with the headline, Light of Her Life, Woman 35, Who Dated the Statue of Liberty. Dolly, where did you find this? Is settling down with Lumiere. A chandelier the objectophile says is too big to take to bed. Dolly, where did you find this? My friend Alex sent it. (laughs) The story continues. A woman who had an intimate relationship with the Statue of Liberty is now engaged to a chandelier. Amanda Liberty, 35, from London, is what is known as... Hold on, did she change her surname to Liberty? Right, Okay. So she's now divorced from the Statue. It's all coming. Okay. Amanda Liberty, 35, from London, is what is known as an objectophile and has fallen in love with a 100-year-old light fitting that she admits is too big to take to bed. She started dating 28-inch Lumiere in 2017 following several profound trysts with inanimate objects. I didn't just decide, oh, I'm going to fall in love with a chandelier today, she explained on Facebook. No, it just happened. It was totally led by my heart. Her journey began with a drum kit when she was 14, and by her late 20s, she changed her name to match America's most famous statue. Pledging herself to the structure, she had a USA flag tattooed on her right arm to commemorate her relationship with Libby. But the union collapsed in 2016, when she felt they'd be better as friends due to the difficulty of their long-distance arrangement. This sounds like the kind of thing you read in Closer magazine. I I used to read uh, stories all the time in Closer about... Women who had fallen in love with roller coasters. Yes, I There's remember. It's a specific those. name, I think, for someone that loves Objectophiles. No, no, or with a car. Like a more specific one. You can write into the Hilo <laughs> if you can remember what it is. Or you could just do a Google. In News of Justice, four teenagers have been charged for beating up lesbian couple Melania Geminat and her girlfriend Chris on a London bus in May. I have something else that will make you happy, Dolly, and that is a clip of Kate Moss talking about how romantic Johnny Depp is on the Big Breakfast. In the 90s. I fell down a YouTube hole last week, as you do on a gal's weekend abroad. I wish I was on this holiday. And one of my best friends, Jess, found this. Gabby Roslin really prods her to be specific about what sort of presents Johnny Depp gives. And Kate replies with this. He gave me a diamond necklace which he had hidden down the crack of his ass. That's sort of romantic. Well, he said, I've got something on my bum, I don't know what it is, so I put my hand down his trousers and... Pulled out the diamond necklace. That was quite romantic. I fucking love the big breakfast. I know, they were just the absolute glory days so of telly. So good. What's in the mailbag this week? We had some emails from listeners about the Instagram like feature, which we uh, discussed last week. Most were very skeptical that the decision is for mental health reasons, positing that instead it's about the bottom line for Instagram and Facebook. There was also an interesting email from South Africa from a listener who is an influencer marketing strategist. 
Personally, I welcome the move. We have a huge problem with influencer fraud in South Africa, especially people buying followers and likes on Instagram to trick brands into working with them. I don't believe that this move will harm proper influencers or the work they'll be getting. They will still have sight of all their stats, including their likes, which they will be able to share with brands to motivate return on investment. We will, however, see brands being forced to dismiss vanity metrics, but instead look at engagement, real engagement, not fake where it's gibberish and just emojis, and look at impressions and reach. In other words, marketing, PR and brand managers will have to be less lazy. Influencers will have to be transparent about their stats and it will weed out the charlatans. We will also see great content creators rise to the top, which I think is a great move. And lastly, we found this short email both funny and comforting. As the parent of teenagers who admire influencers and probably secretly want to be one, I just look back and remember I wanted to be a pop star. Nothing really changes. Don't stress. I mean... (sighs) They are different things, I would say, because I think what we were saying... still want to be pop stars as well. Yeah, and also it's not about wanting fame, notoriety, free clothes. All that stuff is totally fine. Like, truly, I don't have any judgment on that. I think what we were discussing is how it negates the idea of graft. Yes. And there is no, you know... There's quite a lot of graft in being a pop star as well. It makes me feel Yes, exactly, exactly. But anyway, we appreciated that email nonetheless. What have you been enjoying this week, Panda? I loved Taffy Brodessa Ackner, the author of Fleischman is in Trouble this summer's fiction hit, which Dolly and I have discussed on the highlight before. Um, she wrote a piece for Real Simple, a US publication which I actually hadn't heard of before, about how she thrives on stress. It was really interesting to read this piece in the aftermath of our conversation on routine and mm. process, because Taffy's process is the antithesis Mm. of routine wellness in short it's chaotic it's stressful and it works for her it reminded me a lot of mine but mine does not work for me did you read it (laughs) yeah yeah it was quite confronting to read because there's a bit in it where she says these are all the things that I've done in the last year and people are amazed often at how I've done it and the truth is I've done it constantly in total mess And I have to say, this will sound boastful, which I don't mean to, but when I talk about what I've done in the last year, people are often surprised that I've managed Mm -hmm. to do it. And the fact is, it has been, most of it, in total chaos, in the back of cabs, you know, awake at night at 2am when I should be in bed. It it has been in total mess. The difference between me and her, and I really appreciate her honesty, is that she thrives in I was about to say the difference is that she is the rare beast that enjoys that chaos rather than feeling like she's drowning. She writes, The yoga teacher wants me to clear my mind. The wellness podcast I listen to wants me to have routine. My dietician thinks I should plan better to make better choices. My friends want to go on a meditation retreat. They all want me to become this peaceful thing, this mindful thing. They want me to be free from intrusive thoughts. They want me to streamline my life for maximal predictability with minimal stress. They are trying to make me a new breed of woman, a highly regimented woman. Mm. The highly regimented woman is today's ideal. She does one thing at a time. Mm. She doesn't stray from her routine. Mm. She practices mindfulness. She doesn't miss the 8am Thursday Pilates class. She leaves her phone in the other room. She is who we are supposed to strive to be. This is so interesting. The idea, I loved her idea of a trademarked woman as well. So capitalising the, well, Taffy defines herself as a highly haphazard woman. So 
capitalising all of those compared to the highly regimented woman or uh, the chaotic woman, TM, which is which is the one that I always think of. She says, like you were saying, having written a book and published 90,000 words for the New York Times in last year, people keep asking her how she did it. She says, I half-assed it. Nobody liked these answers, she says. They wanted to know that I was being successful in leading a balanced life. They couldn't bear the chaos. They wanted to know how to do it, but only if it meant slowing down, doing one thing at a time, thinking one thought at a time, but sometimes none. I'm told that routine and structure are good for the nerves. I'm told predictability and mindfulness will give me strength and peace. I believe them, but consider this too. What if my goals have nothing to do with peace and calm? What if peace and calm are the last things I want? I loved this. I loved it. Feels like an actual resistance, doesn't it? Because I, I have totally bought into like, I need routine. I need to find out how to make myself like happiest and most productive and calmest. And sometimes I feel totally lost in what I'm, <laughs> how I'm trying to go about my day. Yeah, and also what, what I have been in, in the past, I have got a really strict routine nailed, and I have to say. It's so guilt riddled though when it you does the ball. It does. It does. I do find it easier when I do do that, but it does harbour guilt, as you say. And also, what it does is it leaves no margin for human error in life and, and disaster, which happens every day. And if you're so, or lunch, <laughs> or lunch, if you're so obsessed with these routines, which basically is just a manifestation of 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 control issues, yeah. then if you're hanging on to that and you think that's the secret, when your child gets ill your parent has a fall when the train gets cancelled when something bad happens personally for me in those moments I fucking lose it because I've become so obsessed with the sanctity of this routine 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 and it's just it's too precious real life doesn't work like that I do this really weird thing where I constantly externalize how I spent my day probably because I you know work on my own so I am quite solitary so I have a lot of conversations with myself yeah but I'll I'll think okay well, what have I done today and then I'll play the other person asking me and then I'll reply saying uh well this morning uh that could count as admin this morning I did admin mm. and then I swam but, but I had to swim for my back it's like I'm justifying to someone else who is also me I'm constantly mm. categorizing how I've spent mm. my time anyway I, I, I love that piece it's just brilliant she is just um she is in her element right now do you know what else I really liked about that piece I liked how she contemplated her childhood and adolescence where, and I really identified with this, where she felt that she was forced into situations all the time of a kind of emptiness, where she had to just sit staring at a wall in a maths class or um, in the routine of family life. And she grew frustrated. So she, the way that she compensates now is that she fills her mind in her day with constant activity because it's almost her... Uh, protesting a riposte exactly to her childhood that she she found so frustrating and how empowering for her totally agree I also really enjoyed a piece written by Lou Stoppard for the Financial Times last year on how content took over the world can't believe I missed this first time around because it's V up my street it's very smart and very funny Um, I really enjoy the pop culture of lexicon so when we see a word go viral because it's connected with a way we talk about our lives or a way that we are now living our lives for example we've seen this happen with toxic curator influencer even these words have sort of been rendered meaningless through overuse and I think Lou does a great job at gently poking fun at how this has happened with content and the idea of content creation 
She writes, This is the era of content. Newspapers and magazines make content. They used to call it journalism or editorial. Netflix provides content. Listen to the radio. You're hearing content. Buy a dress online and the breathy description beneath it is content. Real life events are mined for content opportunities. Videos, recordings, sound bites. This article is content. If you read it online and arrive at it via a tweet or Instagram post, that is also content. Entire jobs now exist to create content to get people to look at other content. <laughs> this podcast is content. <laughs> anyway, it was um, that is very up your street. Yeah, it was it was very funny and I thought um, highly prescient. And content has only gone madder in 2019 as it was when she wrote it last year. I loved Elizabeth Day on the onus to enjoy other people's children when you are child-free for the Daily Mail's You magazine, where she has a weekly column. It was brilliant and a reminder to anyone with kids not to put their own lifestyle choices above others, especially when those lifestyles are different. And I know my older sister feels very similar Mm. to Elizabeth on this. Shout out to Anna. Uh, Elizabeth writes... When you are childless, and particularly when you are single, you are expected to put in all the emotional labour to keep in touch with those who have children. There's a supposition that you must be yearning for some family time and that you can travel and fit in around their schedules because you don't have to worry about the logistical difficulties of packing sun hats and muslin cloths and packets of processed pumpkin. And I understand this, but it feels to me as if there's no effort made in the other direction. There's a vanishingly little attempt to think about how many things I might also be juggling, as if my career is merely optional seasoning on the main meal of life, as if my childless status means I'm forever knocking back martinis and running off to nightclubs at a moment's notice. There's no empathetic sense of how difficult it might be not having children, or how lonely it might sometimes feel. Instead, I'm meant to be grateful for the opportunity to see other people embedded in their family lives while simultaneously being made to feel guilty for the frivolous nature of my own existence. I'm so proud of her for writing that because, yeah... There was a time, it was a couple of years ago, I can't remember what it was in relation to, where she and I were having a conversation in the pub and I said to her, I was talking about, I I really can't remember what the situation was. It was something to do with a pregnant woman was demanding something of me to fit around her schedule that I found quite difficult. And she, (laughs) it was not you, Pandora, do not worry. And I said... Yeah, but, you know, she's having a baby and women when women have babies, their life chain changes beyond measure and, and everything about their routine changes and a lot of them have various crises and I can't imagine what that, that's like and I feel like I have to be really, really understanding and I have to use my imagination as much as possible to imagine what their unique situation might be like. And for the first time ever, a woman who's as as clever as Elizabeth, articulated it to me, but she said, yes, but I'm really bored of them not imagining what my life is like. And I suddenly was like, yes, this is so true. Like, why do we always have to imagine this unique situation of what it's like to have a child? Of course we owe each other that empathy and that compassion. But also, what's it like as a woman, say Elizabeth, who's tried to have children, been through IVF, What's it like for her? What's it like for her to go to wedding after wedding on her own? What's it like for her to have a single person's income? What's it like for her to be around people who have kids all the time? As much as people with children, we should fit around their schedule and that we should try and make life easy for them. People owe single and childless people exactly the same amount of compassion and imagination. Totally with you on the compassion and imagination. And I think it's so interesting because I feel like I've kind of experienced several of those stances in that 
I've been pregnant and had a young child and I have felt that kind of loneliness and isolation and that mm. pressure to be back on my feet by people just ignoring my out of office or, you know, asking why I never go out at night or commenting on the fact that I go to bed early. All these things that to people who have children are so incredibly obvious. But I also have an older sister whose life hasn't panned out as she would imagine it and I have seen her constantly meeting people, including me, on their terms where I would say that kind of has to happen is where you have a newborn baby and you're breastfeeding. Yes, totally. But what I thought was really interesting about her piece, um, and I'm so glad, this is one of the things I don't do, is the assumption that someone without children would always want to see your children. Mm. I would always I would always go the other way. I would mm. always meet up with them. Without, if they asked to see your child, then, then fine. But mm. I think what she found so odd is this idea that, like, she must be missing it so much from her life that she would want everyone else's children mm. to fill up her time. I think it was the best column that she's written and I think uh, it will resonate with so many people. I found it really interesting. I'd like to lay my cards on the table right now and say I am obsessed with babies and if you have a baby, I probably would like to see your baby more than you. I include Zadie in that. <laughs> and I was very happy today that as the door opened... I just heard Zadie shout, Hiya! Hiya! From the kitchen. Charlie pointed out she didn't do the same when he when he entered. It's because Charlie doesn't enter with this look of total glee on his face. <laughs> you walk in like you're about to meet the Queen. Which, fair enough, she is quite queenly. HRH Zadie. She's quite stately. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed a short but affecting book called My Name is Lucy Barton by Elizabeth Strout. Uh, about the legacy of a childhood of poverty and trauma and what that holds over your adult life. It's also about the subjectivity of opinion and memory and how sort of heartbreakingly wanting your parents to love you is a is a lifelong craving, mm-hmm. not just the one of a child. This was Man Book, a long-listed in 2016. Elizabeth Strout is best known for Olive Kitteridge, though, which won a Pulitzer. And I haven't read. Have you read Elizabeth no, Strout's I work? I haven't. She is hugely popular and actually she's always mentioned in the same breath as like Nora Ephron, Joan Didion. So very much someone that we should have discovered. Yeah, we, we should have do that. You'll, you'll really like My Name is Lucy Barton um, and it's it's like one of those books that is, um, you know, it's, it's sparse and what is unsaid is as affecting as what is said. Mm. Mm. Um, so I'm definitely going to go and read more of her work. And can we please talk about Lena Dunham's Love Island piece for The Guardian, which you sent me and has since melted the internet and all of my friends' phones. If you haven't read it yet and you're watching Love Island, I really recommend it. It's very funny and very observant. Did it make you tempted to watch it, Dolly? Not in the slightest. Uh, But even if you're not watching Love Island, it is still a totally beautiful, beautiful piece. And there's kind of her own personal experiences in love and dating threaded into that. I just thought it's it just reminds you of of how how talented she is. And when she gets her dad to watch it and uh, he just goes back to his John Le Carre novel <laughs> and says, These people all seem pretty awful. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been enjoying this week, Dolly? I spent Saturday morning in bed reading Midnight Chicken by Ella Risbridger from cover to cover and I totally loved it I which I kind of suspected I would it's been on my bedside table for months and I'm so glad I finally had some time to read it because I've lost count of how many people told me I should read it including you I think Panda it's a totally totally beautiful cookbook illustrated cookbook interspersed with short chapters of memoir about the author's childhood 
adolescence, her friendships, her London homes, her family home, her relationship, uh, her family, and most poignantly and bravely, her struggles with mental health. First and foremost, the recipes are great. There's a really useful range of basics and then more kind of complicated endeavours, lots of different types of cuisines for lots of different budgets and lifestyles and dietary requirements. I'm a pescatarian and there were lots of um, recipes in there that I can't wait to try. Um, they all look mouthwateringly delicious. There's a charred leek lasagna that I'm going to make when I'm back from the holes and a bagel recipe that looks great because I am a bagel addict, as I know you are. Um, and if I was still eating meat, I would also be very excited about trying the midnight chicken and the sausage and slow-cooked onion pasta. Uh, but beyond the recipes, it's just a gloriously written book that really delves into how food forms rituals and memory in families and friendship circles and homes and love affairs and relationships and talks so honestly about the simple, creative, meditative magic of cooking and how cooking can really be a metaphor for the for the enjoyment of everyday existence. I so appreciate and admire her for sharing some of her story with us, which is both painful and very uplifting, and I just think she's such a talented writer. I'd like to read one of the final extracts. This may have looked like a cookbook, but what it really is is an annotated list of things worth living for, a manifesto of moments worth living for, dinner parties and Saturday afternoons in the kitchen and lazy breakfasts, and picnics on the heath, evenings alone with a bowl of soup or a heavy pot of clams for one. The bright clean song of lime and salt and the smoky hum of caramel edged onions, soft goat's cheese and crisp pastry, a six hour ragu simmering on the stove, a glass of wine in your hand. Moments, hours, mornings, afternoons, days and days worth living for add up to weeks and weeks worth living for add up to months and so on and so on until you've unexpectedly built yourself a life worth having, a life worth living. Your life is like a stock pot simmering with all these minutes, everything you've ever learned and everything you've ever loved. Every time you're in the kitchen, you're alive with all the people whose books you've read and the people who taught you and the people who loved you. Nobody is born knowing how to cook. It all comes from people breaking bread together and talking and loving and sharing. And it's probably terribly trite, but I can't think of anything more important than this. Your life is a stockpot. I had no idea. I thought it was like pure cookbook. No, it's I mean, it is mainly a cookbook, but it's it's got these kind of moments of of personal narrative in as well it's just such a beautiful book and would make a lovely present actually for someone in your life beautiful yeah i loved an archive episode of this american life which is about americans in paris it was originally broadcast in 2000 and uh it's it looks at why americans have always been so drawn to paris and what it was like to be an american in paris in the year 2000 There's a very interesting segment in it in which Ira Glass interviews an African-American writer, Janet MacDonald, on living in Paris and looks at what it's like to be an African-American in the city and the stories of historic men of colour in the city, such as James Baldwin uh, living in Paris and how they found it more accepting and safe than America and whether that was still the case and whether in 2000 it was more or less hostile than the US she concludes that it's less. There's also a fabulous uh, first segment in which David Sedaris uh, takes 
Ira Glass around Paris because I think at that point he'd been living there for about a year and a half. And he's so, so funny in it. He talks about why he's never been to the Louvre and why he thinks that <laughs> going to see paintings is just a complete waste of time. Slightly with him. Well, it's really interesting how he presented it, actually. He said, I don't think you ever... I know lots of people disagree with me, and I have to say I've had moments in my life that would prove otherwise when I've been in galleries. But he said, on the whole, he feels like you don't hold on to the experience of standing in front of a particular painting and you do it instead to tell a story that you went and saw a painting. And he said, what you remember of a city is like when you eat something really fabulous or really disgusting, when you go to a really interesting shop and buy something really bizarre, when you watch some kind of odd people behaving strangely on the pavements... Those are the things that make up your memories and your understanding of a city. And he takes Ira Glass to this flea market in Paris. It's so funny because he's obviously so disgusting. He's just taking him around these like horrid taxidermy stalls and, you know, brains and jars and whatever. And as he's, it's already like quite a trippy experience as Ira Glass is walking around all these kind of curiosity stalls with him. They spot Judge Judy. <laughs> And exactly that is. And she's, he's like, oh my God, it's Judge Judy in the White Parker. <laughs> it's just, she's just wandering around. It's just this like magic radio moment. Um, and there's this really interesting bit where he talks about how humiliating it is to be a tourist, to be living in another city, particularly in Paris, where he argues, I've spent some time in Paris. I would agree with him. I love Paris. It's my favourite city in the world. It's not the most welcoming place in no. terms of learning a new language yeah. and trying to embed yourself. It is a kind of generally quite humiliating experience and lots of other Americans and Brits I know who've gone to Paris and lived there for a while have said the same. And he says, he talks about how there are only certain shops or certain cafes that he goes to that he feels comfortable because they are really encouraging of him speaking French and trying to acquire the language and then Ira Glass makes this really interesting point which I haven't thought of before of why he was attracted to go there because it doesn't sound like he's having that much of a good time really throughout the programme and it was right after his work had made him very well known and Ira Glass puts forward this theory that unless you're a particular type of exhibitionist or narcissist there's only so much of being a somebody that the human soul can handle before it absolutely needs to be a nobody again and he said that David Sedaris having spoken at all these packed out halls signed all these books for people read all these reviews about himself had this real moment of notoriety he just needed something deep within him needed to be a nobody and what what is more humbling and what makes you more of a nobody than walking around in Paris and the chicest Frenchest people in the world <laughs> sneering <laughs> at your attempts to speak their language and have no idea of who you are. There's some, and he agrees that that was probably the case. There was something deep within him that needed to be humbled to the point of of anonymity and, and embarrassment. And it just made me think of how that cycle happened so much. Joni Mitchell, my favourite singer, famously she just went and lived in a cave for a year. And there's something on... Yeah, okay. An actual cave? Yeah, in Greece, yeah. Like, with a, like nothing, just a cave? Yeah, with like a really Cave-a-cave. simple... Yeah, Matala, I don't know how to say the island. 
Matala. I mean, you're looking at me like I know what cave she's <laughs> But what's in. so funny is because I'm such a Joni fan, whenever I'm hanging out, there's a certain contingent of my friends who have, like... Caves. Who have, like, these sort of boho ageing parents. And every time I come into contact with one, they claim that they hung out with Joni Mitchell in her cave. I'm like, every middle-class English person who took some fucking hallucinogenics in the 70s claimed to have been in that cave with Joni Mitchell. But anyway, it's obviously an interesting... It's an interesting pattern that I agree with Ira Glass that the human spirit really, really craves. And it was fascinating to hear David Sedaris kind of work through that. He loves shopping, David Sedaris. He wrote a short story, I can't remember in which anthology it is, um, about how him and his sisters love shopping, which is not how they were brought up. Yeah. Not brought up to um, be profligate. And they, not only do they love shopping, they love really expensive shopping. And he says they love going to shops that make... Like sort of clothes that don't even look like clothes. He says they go. He goes wild for a pair of trousers where like one pant leg is longer than the other, <laughs> or like a shirt that is made entirely from uh, patches and has to be worn upside down and you can't really move his arms. Like him and his sisters go mad for like an eleven hundred dollar piece of clothing that doesn't look like clothing. Isn't isn't remotely functional and everyone so will funny. laugh at him for the rest of time. I do. You know what? I cannot get enough of him, and I came to him way too late. Have you got Calypso? I've just bought Calypso for my holiday, and I've also just started reading naked no i haven't got naked i've just started reading me talk pretty one day oh yeah I've which is na- about his time sounds like you're set up with those but when you want naked okay fine. if i sound like i'm roaming it's because i sort of am i'm looking on my bookshelves <laughs> to try and find um to try and find naked yeah one of my favorite i say one of my favorite stories it's not really my favorite it's the one that comes to me daily because it is so foul is when he had a cyst the turtle have you read it? No, is I it heard just, him, Is it just I, legendary? No, I heard him talk about it on Adam Buxton. Tell, tell the listeners. Tell the <clears> listeners. He had a cyst cut off, like a big cyst, and um, the like. The doctors really didn't want to give it back to him, but he somehow managed to, to take his cyst away with him. And then he went to feed it to one of his favourite turtles um, who lived near his holiday home. And when he got there, that turtle had gone, so instead he fed it to like some other turtles. But it is... It is such, it's literally made me feel sick. It's such a revolting story. <laughs> he is grotesque, though. I know. And it's weird because I'm just not like that at all, as you know. No, no, no. He's a true eccentric. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm no, I, but any sort of bodily humour is not... I'm just not into it. But for some reason, I'm very drawn to it with him. Like, I can take that as part of the David Sedaris package. And Me Talk Pretty One Day is about his time in Paris... And it's so, so, so good. And who was I listening to? I can't remember. Maybe it was Lauren that just told me this. I had dinner with my friend Lauren and we were talking about how much we love David Sedaris. And I can't remember where this came from. It was from an interview that he gave. The observations in his book are so sharp and so funny. Mm. Everything's a punchline, but in a totally effortless, unaffected way. It's like mind-blowing writing. He said in an interview that he thinks had he had Twitter, had he had a social media outlet when he first started writing um, kind of humorous pieces and and his essays and his observation, all his material would have gone online. There's a magic in stockpiling your material and your observations, making it as private as possible and then putting it all into the pages of your book and nowhere else really made me think, actually. Really, really made me think. Thankfully, I'm not that entertaining on Twitter. I just share lots of work of other people. This is totally something that should be saved for my therapist's office. But I think I do use Twitter 
to be the kind of loser kid in the classroom who's desperately trying to make everyone laugh. I do do that. I think you're very. Fu- I think you're very funny on Twitter. I don't think it's your best work though. Don't worry. <laughs> but I do think sometimes if I. Just as my school report said, if I took a little bit less interest... So excited about ...in making all the idiots at the back of the classroom laugh and focused a bit more on putting that in my work, maybe I'd succeed more. (laughs) (laughs) I also loved an episode of This American Life, which is an archive episode about rom-coms, which someone sent to me when they read my anniversary piece on When Harry Met Sally, because it mentions When Harry Met Sally quite a lot in it. Up top, it kind of starts with just a general chat about rom-coms and the structure of rom-coms and the appeal of rom-coms and why we love them so much. And then it unpicks the tropes of rom-coms and finds real-life stories that have mirrored rom-coms. And what happens when those rom-com tropes intersect with real life? So there's um, a funny story about running to an airport. There's a story about a long-anticipated night of passion that goes disastrously wrong Uh, but the clip that I wanted to play is about a man who pursued a woman for years and he was madly in love with her and they were just friends and she really said this is only ever going to be friendship and then he finally received a text from her that signified she was romantically interested in him and what did he do of course when Harry met Sally style he ran through the streets can we talk about the running yeah why does love always involve running that is interesting. Why did I feel like I had to run? In the movies they run, but usually it's because someone's about to get married or about to get on a plane. Like, It felt very urgent to get there very quick. This had been building up for years. And for a moment she was willing to consider it. And I was going to get there before she said it was too late or she was too tired. Steve told me he'd been living in the friend universe for so long. And now it was like this little wormhole had opened up. He didn't know for how long. Where he might be able to slip into the parallel universe of boyfriend. Steve did eventually get a taxi. He made it to her apartment, and he stayed over. And they did become boyfriend and girlfriend. In the movies, this is often the final scene. The end of the movie is the beginning of the relationship. You don't really get to see how it goes. How he gets too clingy, one of them meets someone else, how it just fades. But that is not this story. We got married. Uh... And now we have two kids, and I still can't believe it's all played out the way it did. I know things don't always work out in the end. But sometimes you just want to hear the ones that do. Support for the Hilo comes from Christie. Christie was founded in 1850 by Henry Christie, inventor of the towel that we know today. Since then, Christie have continued to produce high-quality and long-lasting towels, bed linen and home accessories all designed in Manchester. Mine and Pandora's favourite activity, other than eating copious amounts of salt and vinegar crisps, is reading in bed or in the bath. Not together. We've never done that, but there's always time, I suppose. Find me a big enough bath. Christy is here for your bed and bath needs. Christy bed linens boast high thread counts, unique designs, and are made with the finest cotton. 
They are also known for their towels, especially the Supreme High Grow range, which gets fluffier after every wash. I love a fluffy bath sheet. Very hard to find. And if you don't believe us, believe Wimbledon, because Christie are also the official towel supplier for the Wimbledon Championships, producing the iconic towels used by the players on Centre Court. So join us and Andy Murray in living a Christie life and shop online at christie.co.uk and get 25% off your order at christie.co.uk with the code THEHILO. T's and C's apply. Thanks very much to Christy. Jacob Rees-Mogg has celebrated the first week of his tenure as leader of the House of Commons by implementing a very specific style guide that was drawn up by the North East Somerset MP's office some time ago, but has only just been made public. So the banned words and phrases are very, due to... Ongoing, hopefully, unacceptable, equal, too many eyes, yourself, lot got, speculate, invest in schools, etc. No longer fit for purpose. I am pleased to learn, meet with, ascertain, disappointment, I note slash understand your concerns. And then there's a rules column. Organisations are singular. All non-titled males are to be esque, short for squire. There is no full stop after miss or ms. But MPs do have full stops. No need to write MP after their name in body of text. Male MP... I literally can't even understand this reading. It. Male MPs, non-privy councillors, in the address they should have esque before MP. E.g. Tobias Elwood, esque MP. Double space after full stops. Never heard that one. No comma after and. Check your work. Use imperial measurements. I missed the first time I read this. I think it is so telling and hilarious that the word equal is just not of any use to Jacob rees <laughs> nor is invest. <laughs> the English student in me quite enjoys this. Clearly he's against the modern penchant for hyperbole with very and lot in there. And he doesn't like prevarication much either. Hopefully is in there. But unacceptable and ascertain seem quite rogue. What are your favourites, Dolly? And what do you think is missing? I mean, they're obviously all completely ludicrous, but I think that Esquire really is the pathetic cherry on top of this trifle. On top of this eaten mess. Just thought of that. Well done, me. I'm quite partial to an Esquire, actually. Are you? I'm quite surprised that the guy doesn't have so to start a sentence. To tell you the truth, honestly, the thing is, at the end of the day, ultimately, Kate Garraway suggested obviously and basically... On Good Morning Britain, I think those are both fair points. Obviously and basically are both really overused. I wouldn't expect the list to include like or and at the start of a sentence, as I think that's just too obvious a grammatical transgression for Jacob Rees-Mogg to even include. Grammatical transgression is a very satisfying term. I think there are many readers of my work who regularly think I'm a perpetrator of grammatical transgressions. I don't think you're a grammatical transgressor, but I am... I'm not always in favour of a grammatical transgression, as you can, as you can tell. Obviously, the style guide has attracted mockery and disbelief, um, even from me, who is quite nerdy about language. It does not surprise me that Jacob Rees-Mogg is a linguistic purist. Uh, he has been called the honourable member for the 18th century. A writer called Benjamin Dyer made me laugh when he wrote, The thing to bear in mind about Jacob Rees-Mogg's lunatic language manifesto is that it doesn't indicate his mastery of bygone English. It indicates his lack of mastery of any English. Interestingly, that same writer has as his pinned tweet a style guide of his own for 2016, the life-changing art to tidying up your writing. And it says, Go a week without. Very, rather... Really, quite, 
So, of course, in fact. I think those are fair suggestions. Mm. He's basically saying... He's basically saying, listen to me. He <laughs> I'm is, the worst for those. He is encouraging us not... not it, it, Essentially, that's another one I was about to say. Essentially, that should be in there as well. God, it's really interesting. I have about five words that I cannot bear when I read back my work or listen to myself hearing how much I say them and I ain't going to disclose what they are because then everyone will see them. Furthermore is definitely one of mine. Is it? What, in your writing? I think so, probably. Furthermore, essentially. There, I mean, there are absolutely loads. But what his style guide is saying, which I think is a really good tip for a writer, is is don't sort of halt your writing, don't prevaricate. And very and rather and really and quite are all sort of... Sort of... Throat clearing. Yeah, are yeah. all half-hearted ways of saying stuff. I enjoyed the responses from other MPs on Twitter. Chris Bryant tweeted, I confess I like double space after a full stop. Not bothered about MP rather than MP or esque as I'm not the son of a knight. I like the Oxford comma. I measure food in kilos. Angela Rayner tweeted, Who will have the courage to tell JRM that we don't order kids up chimneys these days? Dixon of Dog Green wasn't a real policeman. Or the penny farthing isn't one's choice of bicycle anymore. David Lammy tweeted, In July 2015, one pound was worth one euro 44 cents. In July 2019, one pound is worth one euro 11 cents. Hope Jacob Rees-Mogg bringing back imperial measurements and double spaces at the start of sentences is worth it. That's in reference to mm-hmm. him being a hard Brexiteer. But for you, Dolly, it wasn't just about language, it was about a certain type of snobbery, wasn't it? Yeah, I went off on a bit of a rant, which I immediately regretted, actually. But I'll share it again here. I liked your rant. It made me laugh, your tennis T-shirt. I said, Those Jacob Rees-Mogg rules exemplify the most irritating habits of the worst megaposh. They are obsessed with these weird, oldy-woldy rules that no one else fucking cares about, and they use as a way to grasp a fake sense of control in a world where they feel increasingly disempowered. And if you think this is an oblique reference to the time my ex-boyfriend's posh mum seemed to find it bizarre that I hadn't packed tennis whites for the weekend and instead played in a t-shirt that said alcohol, caffeine, nicotine, then yes, maybe you're right. Never let a posh person convince you that etiquette is for anything other than patronising and humiliating. I think that T-shirt's the real crime here. (laughs) You've seen that T-shirt when I was on my way for a workout, and you absolutely berated me for it. It's not unlike the cushion that you resold. (laughs) Oh my God, let go of the cushion. Eat, sleep, kale, repeat or something. (laughs) A tweet from an academic named Dr Joe Grady gave me real pause for thought. That rule list was designed to go viral. It's a distraction. Jacob Rees-Mogg opposes abortion, gay marriage, he celebrated zero-hour contracts, and he believes the rise of food banks is, quote-unquote, uplifting. He is dangerous, Boris is Prime Minister, because these silly disinformation tactics work. Rees-Mogg's always fallen foul of his own rules. A transcript of his speech about opportunities for Brexit revealed that he used very, got, I, and lot. Lynn Murphy, Professor of Linguistics at the University of Sussex, told the BBC that trying to ban the word got is like trying to ban sneezing, as it's in the top ten most common verbs in English and is indispensable to many expressions. I agree that this is obviously a distraction, and I'm very much complicit in that distraction by going off on one on Twitter about it, which is one of the reasons I kind of regretted tweeting it. I basically regret 90% of everything I tweet, which is another reason why I should just get off Twitter. But just to reiterate, this kind of patronising pedantry really, really does anger me. I've witnessed this sort of obsession with with this kind of rarefied, nonsensical etiquette a number of times. And it's just a tool to identify people 
that they deem to be not like them and to wield power and embarrass people. And so often this sort of othering is under the guise of restoring manners and decency when really it just completely eradicates the idea of just basic human niceness. And none of it matters. It doesn't matter if you put Esquire on the end of someone's name. It doesn't matter if you send a thank you text or an email rather than some handwritten letter. It doesn't matter if you say toilet instead of loo or settee instead of sofa. And people who think it does are just evidently increasingly aware that their influence and power is in demise and that one day very soon no one will fucking care about what they have to say about anything. Interesting. I disagree with some of those. I would always prefer a handwritten letter. I think a text is lazy if someone's done something really lovely for you. Of course it's lovely, but I don't think it should be used as a mark of someone's decency. I don't think it's always to do with decency, though. I think some people who are obsessed with language, like my dad is, and it's certainly not to make others feel inferior. It's this idea, which I do see that we are kind of losing grasp of a of a language sometimes I do get really depressed when I see some of the writing that's now gone out without being proofread being riddled with spelling mistakes just this lack of emphasis on things being spelt properly or used in the same way I mean I think he's gone way too far the double full stop thing is extraordinary but I don't know always going to prefer a handwritten letter and I will always probably be quite pedantic about language myself but not in like an evolutionary way in a way that I think it is important of course it's important if you're writing I don't think that it's as important in terms of people sending emails to each other don't even get me started on the email etiquette (laughs) I might create my own Hilo style guide and I can already tell you what will be on it like my bete noir I still often use it myself it is terrible in podcasts i counted about 50 in a podcast that i really like by two that was the right use of the word <laughs> by two women that i really like uh dolly would you adhere to my high low style guide it's quite in keeping with my anal personality yes but i would like totally fail <laughs> within five minutes hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week, Ofcom reported that young people in Britain have almost entirely abandoned the news on television, with half of the country now getting their news from social media. While the average person aged 65 and over watches 33 minutes of TV news a day, this falls to just two minutes among people aged between 16 and 24, according to the Media Regulator's annual news consumption report. Do you watch the news, Panda? I'm touched, you think I fall in between the 16 to 24-year-old bracket. (laughs) I don't actually. I read the BBC twice a day and I get the newspapers three times a week. I don't watch it on the telly. My parents watch it morning and evening though. They never miss the 10 o'clock news. So that is actually reflective of my own experience, that data. I only ever watch the news on TV when I'm with my mum and dad as well. My dad is 
addicted to televised news. He basically has BBC 24 on in the background all day, every day. It's like an airport lounge. Whatever the weather, like a bloody doctor's waiting room. Um, But other than that, I don't watch it. And shamefully, I've lived in my flat for two years and I still haven't worked out how to plug in my TV so it's connected to terrestrial TV. I think that's any great loss. I think that's rather lovely you haven't figured it out. Well, I just use it for iPlayer and catch up and Netflix. I just don't watch live TV now. But yeah, that's why apparently there has been such a decrease in the consumption of televised news um, because the report found that audiences are moving away from traditional live broadcast channels where, you know, traditionally you might watch a popular programme and then leave the channel on during an evening news bulletin. Apparently that's just not how people are watching programmes anymore. Well, as you know, I do watch Good Morning Britain, although that's gone down a lot recently. I've sort of forgotten about it. Uh, And I watch BBC dramas on telly occasionally. I don't really watch telly in the week. But aside from that, it is the dreaded Netflix and Amazon Prime and Sky, which has a gallingly astronomical total monthly bill that just taunts and guilts me to be honest too many outlets what do you make of this new data does it worry you or is it just do you think more generally reflective of how we are living our lives now and how we're fitting everything in i think just might be in my style guide so that's was... that's one of my five that's one of my five yeah, I think it was totally necessary in that. Uh, people... <laughs> oh my god <laughs> jacob reese mogg pandora reese mogg <laughs> trips off the tongue people watching less telly will never worry me people engaging with less news yes that will worry me i don't know if those stats necessarily reflect people engaging with less news though that said i think what it does reflect is engaging with bite-sized news more. So scrolling through the news on your phone is not the same as watching a half-an-hour broadcast or, in my opinion, reading a really great piece of writing that Mm. delves into a new policy or tragedy. I bet you absorb it in a totally different way Mm. when you watch the news on telly, actually. Initially, I didn't find this research that worrying because I decided to collectively give us all the benefit of the doubt and assume that most people still did collect news from official and trusted news outlets, but they just probably did it through the outlet's social media account or from from content online. But then I read another suggested finding in the article that I found more concerning. It said, The shift could have major implications for British politics given services such as Netflix do not provide any news. Political parties have traditionally considered the BBC's 10pm news bulletin to be their most important outlet for getting their message across to large swathes of the public, which in turn can shape policies being proposed and how they are presented. And actually, I would argue, I think that that impact has already been felt. When you think about the kind of major political changes of the last few years, Brexit and the election of Trump, both of which I personally deem to be totally disastrous. They were campaigns in which manipulation and misinformation online was really instrumental for the final result. Yeah, and I'm actually just thinking about it, and even though I always mean to, I don't watch Newsnight, which is where you Mm. get the proper long-form interviews, Mm. you know, brilliant Emily Maitlis interviewing politicians, and that's where you actually really hear what they're about and Mm. what they want to do. Mm. I will forever be haunted by my discovery several years ago when I interviewed a bunch of teenagers about how they got their news for a piece I wrote for my own website. And most of them told me they got their news from Snapchat as they didn't trust journalists. Oof. Lol, sob, lol, sob. The research also found that off the back of people finding their news online, the move towards people 
arguing online about news events has also increased. And I must say, while debating news events on Twitter or in Instagram comments is, I can confidently say, my least favourite activity (laughs) on earth and something I go out of my way not to do and I hope I never have to do again. I actually don't think that this increase is necessarily a bad thing. Learning about the news becoming more of an online activity, that worries me in terms of the distinctions between truth and lies. But an upside is I think it's made current affairs more accessible and perhaps more easy to engage with and digest and debate. And I do think that's a good thing. I think it's made a specific aspect of current affairs more accessible. I've increasingly noticed when talking about politics that people focus now on personality rather than policy. For example, lots of people who are opposed to Boris Johnson are opposed to him because he's blustery Mm. and he shags around a lot and he's got silly hair. But they don't know much about... I'm picking a positive action here because there are some about his record on LGBT rights or they hate Jeremy Hunt because they've broadly heard about his NHS cuts and you know he's very obnoxious in Adam Kay's book which tons of people have read but they don't actually know what the cuts are Mm. and cuts as we are constantly made aware in a sense this is all politics is parties shuffling around different cuts Mm. are essential Mm. so I, I worry that that the actual substance is being lost in the kind of uh, social media debates. I can't actually despair too much about the story because I think that would make me a hypocrite. In all honesty, when I want to find out the most up-to-date information on a breaking news story, I will always go to a news source first, but then I also will follow it keenly on Twitter because I'll be looking for you know insider accounts or citizen journalism or citizen journalism on the ground. But I do generally have an awareness of what is a trusted source and what could be misinformation or exaggeration. The concerning thing is that not everyone will make that distinction and then their opinions or their decisions or their voting will be informed by lies, as I say, exaggerations or just human error mistakes. Absolutely, and I think actually it's a lot harder to tell what is a trusted source. I think it's easier for both of us as journalists actually to see through rhetoric and Mm. and fact. But also I've just like spent so much time on Twitter, do you know what I mean? That's It's not a skill, it's just that I'm, I'm better now at sifting through what could be a rumour and what could be truth, whereas I don't know, if you haven't spent 10 years basically glued to Twitter, I'm not sure if you could make that same distinction. I try much more now, to be honest, than I used to, to go on to um, right and left-leaning mm-hmm. sites. So when we were um, talking about Jacob Rees-Mogg, I went and had a look on The Spectator and I had a look on The Guardian. Um, although The Spectator had just actually reported it as a news story, they hadn't given an opinion on it. So you can't always, you know, trade and compare. Mm. But I think that's quite a good tip is um, try and mix up your news sources mm. As, mm. as much as you can bear, really. This story slightly links back to our recent discussions on the show about transparency in online influencer culture, which is closely kind of marshaled and regulated by the ASA. I think news stories picking up speed and rumours and information circulating is inevitable online and is just a part of mass human behaviour and human error and online culture. But you almost need the same clear distinctions that everyone now has to do between sponsored content and more instinctive content. This sounds mad. Maybe it's a hashtag that makes it clear that this is something that someone's heard or assumes rather than 
something that someone has arguable evidence for. But I don't know if that would ever be able to catch on. I'm just interested in in how we keep the truth sacred. But do you know what? More and more, and thankfully, my useless brain, which doesn't have a memory for anything at all, um, is really good at holding on to facts. More and more, I find um, facts are useful. Mm. You know, it's talking about 94% this or 58% this. I try and really actually hold on to inarguable facts and mm. start from there. Um, I think your hashtag should be called Heard It on the Grapevine. <laughs> The question of what makes a news source is something Pandora and I have thought about quite a lot the last few years, and it's something we became increasingly aware of as this podcast grew. I remember very early on uh, when we were making the high-low, there were a few instances when we had got something wrong. We either hadn't double fact-checked our stats or our names of things. And then the following week, there would be a contingent of listeners who were really, really, really angry about it. We'd be mortified, realise our mistake, publicly apologise in the following episode and just try and be even more vigilant. But for that small contingent of people, it wasn't enough. That wasn't enough of a of a repentance. They felt betrayed, like we'd let them down and like we hadn't provided the correct service we promised. And I have to say, I found that really, really bizarre and it took me a while to try and understand it and get my head around it and then I think you and I both realized that the podcast was growing at a rate that we hadn't fully understood and as mad as this sounds and I know this will sound very self-aggrandizing but I only know this to be true having engaged with listeners there was a minority of our listeners who treated the high-low as their main news source perhaps even their only news source which for me was completely ridiculous and felt like an unfair demand rather than a compliment. Because at the time, we were a team of two. We were barely breaking even from it. We didn't have the time or the funds or the team or the skills or the resources to make a show like it was the Today programme. That's actually why we changed the um, billing of it as well. I think we used to call it a news and yeah. podcast podcast yeah. and now I call it a current affairs report. It's, it's not news. It, I don't want it to be news either. No, no. And I think we, we never... We never wanted to be someone's news source, but it was something we became aware of. And as soon as we had the money, fact-checking became our priority and we hired a sub-editor to check all the facts and um, our pronunciations. Hi, Anna. Hi, Anna. Uh, We love you. We still do miss things sometimes or get things wrong or, you know, uh, we'll go off on a tangent, which is something that Anna can't triple check because she's not in the room with us and we want it to be an organic conversation and we really really fucking hate it when we get things wrong but I'm also more aware now that when people properly flip out at us about it it's often because they do see the high low as their news source and as we said personally I don't want to be a person's only news source we don't have the team experience skills or money to be that I don't think any of us ever wanted to be someone's breaking news I love to aggregate information for people, whether that's in my writing or this podcast. I love to bring stories and points of view to people's attention. But I don't think I'll ever stop my rally cry, which is buy one paper, just one, on one day of the weekend, please. This new story really has made me think. I think the most important take home from this is that I do just have to plug my TV find a way to plug it into the mates it is the most important <laughs> why, is this so, why is this so complicated all the weird little plugs I hope when we come back after the high lows break 
you might have figured that out. Yeah, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Speaking of, we will be taking August off the high low to pursue writing projects. Have a great summer. I hope there's no more train tracks melting for anyone. Remember to weigh a factor 50. We'll be bringing you lots of reading recommendations when we're back. We'll probably do a bumper book special and if you're missing us and you still want a ticket to come and see the Hilo live in action there are some tickets left to our Manchester gig for the Hilo experience go to www.fameproductions.com forward slash Hilo in the meantime you can email us show at gmail.com or tweet us at show. although please do note that both of those outlets will probably be taking a break as well don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes helps other people find us and helps boost us in the charts (laughs) have a great august bye hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.